You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Aaliyah. And this is Katie. And this is a little bit of a different format than what we typically do. But given the climate and given the conversations around racial injustice in our country, we wanted to switch it up because this episode is specifically about urban planning. And I really feel that urban planning has laid the framework and the foundation of a lot of the dysfunction that we see today. And so I definitely wanted to put this here so that way we could catch people on the front end, but also let people just kind of hear Femi's take on urban planning. Yeah, I'm so excited about this episode because I think what people don't realize is that planners deal with so many issues that shape our everyday lives, like from our transportation to our housing to economic development. And whether they're making decisions directly or they're influencing the decisions that are getting made, All of those things impact how we experience the places around us, how we access goods and services, but also the opportunities available to us. And I want to put that out there because I, to be honest, I like knew nothing of urban planning as a child growing up. That's not a profession that anyone introduced to me. I heard about doctors, nurses, librarians, but nothing about planners. And it wasn't until I was working at the National League of Cities, that that was the first time that I was introduced to city planning. And when I figured out just like the impact of planning decisions on the way our communities are shaped, my mind was blown. I will never forget, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I was there to learn about health disparities. And we took this driving tour and we started out in South South Baton Rouge. And it was these beautiful, like historic homes, like gorgeous, like picture yourself sitting on the front porch, sipping sweet tea and lemonade and just having the best time of your life. (laughs) Then we rode to North Baton Rouge and we turned off the main road. And as we got further and further from the main road, these houses Katie, I kid you not, it looked like if the wind blew too much, like the house was just going to fall over. There were no sidewalks, things were overgrown, and we just kept going further and further back. And it was like, now there's no stores. There literally was nothing back here until we got to a dead end. And on the right side, there was this like, I guess like multifamily housing apartment building. And you saw people kind of hanging out, but the building you could tell was pretty old and there wasn't much going on. And then to the left, we turned in this like parking lot and we had to go through these gates. And when we went through the gates, the gates like snapped behind us. And I asked the tour guide, I was like, where are we? Like, what is this? And he was like, this is an elementary school. We had to put the gates up because of all the shooting that happens across the street. And I looked at him and I just started to cry. And I was like, I'm sorry, this is so unprofessional, but there's no way I can come here and talk about obesity and healthy eating and active living when there's like bigger shit going on, like from the sidewalks to the housing to everything else we just rode through, like this is a problem. And that's when I became really excited about planning and the fact that each of like the way this community was laid out, the way this community looks now all of that is a result of intentional decisions about how we plan communities and where we put resources. I had kind of a similar experience. My my take was more from looking and understanding or having a better understanding of Camden, New Jersey, but not even going into that. Like I want to we can talk about that another time. My issue is that we look at disparities and we look at injustice and these are engineered 
issues. These are socially engineered issues. And when you look at, when we talk about cities, Femi talks about cities a lot in the episode and and reimagining cities and how do we reinvigorate with COVID. But when you look at what makes a city and you look at the housing, right? You look at the Federal Housing Administration and redlining and what happened with that and the impacts from that. When you look at transportation and how highways and the construction of highways decimated urban areas and specifically black communities, we engineered where black people and brown people were to go. And now we're coming at it like, let's fix it. And we have to fix it at the policy and at the government level because so many different instances were put into place that really forced people to live in communities that did not have access to, you know, we talked about water, the education wasn't there, policing, there's more concentrated policing, which means there's more concentration of people going to prison, which means when they come out, the cycle just continues. And so that's, I'm just so, like I told you when we recorded, I just am so almost jaded and pissed off because you look at all of these factors that people never had a chance. And when you look at when black people couldn't get work coming into the labor unions or going back to redlining, but nobody's talking about the Tennessee Valley Authority and what they did and completely eliminating housing for black people and black people that were doing farming work, but they doesn't happen to own land. And so it's all of these things that tie into this broader conversation that so many people don't even know about. And those are the systems and the policies that put people where they are. And each of these things could be like a whole separate two hour long conversations. No, exactly. I mean, if we even just dissect some of what you're talking about and take it in chunks. So you talked about the importance of focusing on policy. Well, the very tool or policy that planners use most often is zoning. Zoning is how we separate different uses, um, often what they call incompatible uses. Well, if we go back in history, there used to be racial zoning ordinances that basically were designed to keep neighborhoods segregated. And even once those were outlawed by the Supreme Court, then you had racial covenants, which were basically other ways of protecting that this neighborhood will stay white and no one of color will be able to come in. And all of those things then set up the structure so that in particular neighborhoods, we will have parks, we will have single family housing, we will have other amenities. But then in the other areas that we had segregated or blocked off due to our zoning or these covenants, we will not put anything there. And then if we jump forward to what you were talking about with redlining, there have been studies. There was actually one that came out today in the um, American Journal of Public Health that talked about they did they looked at preterm births in New York City and some of the same neighborhoods that were redlined back in the 1950s. Oh, for sure. It's the same. Yeah. They are having higher rates of preterm birth and they're black and brown neighborhoods. So let's first just go into because a lot of people are just now even learning what redlining is. And so you had practices from the, was it the Home Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Administration that would put a map up and draw a red line and say, these are undesirable neighborhoods in which we will not back mortgages. Right. So basically they were drawing these maps to rank your mortgage credit worthiness. And so areas that were green, which were typically white, got graded like an A or B. And that signaled to investors, like, this is a place to back mortgages. It also signaled to other investors, if you're backing homes there, then this is a safe place for you to invest in many other things like transportation and businesses. Then the neighborhoods that they mapped as red 
it was basically a red flag. Don't go here. This, it, this, if you were to give a mortgage here or any other type of loan, the assumption was that it would default. But when you look beneath it, really, these were areas that were predominantly people of color. And so you're basically saying, don't put anything in this neighborhood. And so that then mean, meant the quality of the housing went down, the availability of jobs goes away, investments in schools aren't there because the tax base isn't there. And so you've created these neighborhoods that have so far, like you said, that have so far to come because there's no investment, no opportunity happening there that we see those same neighborhoods now suffering from the mm-hmm. greatest like health disparities and inequities. And even in your, I know your jam is thoroughly transportation and you look at the transportation legislation through Eisenhower and it was sold, the bill of goods was sold that This is for our protection. This is for if we need to respond for war and to move goods up and down the highways through our country. But it literally obliterated black communities. And they used that money to say that they were, quote unquote, fighting blight and fighting slums. And they they just literally got rid of communities. And you see it when you drive through cities, right? When you look out the window and you can see, oh, wow, that's the black community there. That's the white community. And I just remember we had a company called, in the incubator called Division Street Landscaping. And it always made me think of Division Avenue in Orlando. So I was actually born in Orlando. I don't know if you Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, my family lives in Orlando. That's so funny. You learn something <laughs> new every day. But Division Ave, which some are like, oh, it's not named because it was being divisive, but it really was in that it put a put a line in a street right down the middle of the black and white community. And so those frameworks are what put people where they are. And then when people now have these biases or these stereotypes that, oh, that's quote unquote ghetto and they think of a black person or they need urban renewal, like don't get me started on urban renewal programs in the in its entirety. And I just really, really want people to know that there are all of these things. When you look at housing and you look at the Mount Laurel Doctrine in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, the town right next to where I grew up, and them saying that, hey, we just want to have a nice new community and redevelop and we don't want to have any affordable housing, a.k.a. black housing in our communities. So all of these things just have all tied into where we are today and we need to really be thinking about those impacts and we really can't just have these pie in the sky dreams because this is generationally manufactured and we it's going to take this is the long game to undo that so two things i want to follow up on one on transportation there was a really good read on this conversation about tearing down monuments and in the la times there was an article that talked about if you want to tear down the most racist monuments in america you need to tear down freeways and he talks about how the la freeways were actually there was a mandate like not to go through any parks or any parkland and so they went all the way around some of these like great parks in white neighborhoods to preserve the park and to preserve the white spaces. But then in order to do that, had to cut through and completely mm-hmm. bulldoze black and brown neighborhoods just to make sure the route could go. But like you see all these winds and turns because they're avoiding white areas in order to rip through the black ones to yeah. make the highway work. So I, I thought it was a really interesting take on like, what are the things we lift up and celebrate and how mm-hmm. were those things created and who was harmed in the process? The other thing I want to touch on is when you were talking about we can't just have the pie in the sky. If you Hold think on, about can it, we go back to the highway for a second and the transportation? Oh yeah. Because the highways actually created that culture of the automobile and it created the culture of white flight out of cities and the disinvestment yep. in cities. And when you look at 
who went to the suburbs, and then again, who qualified for the mortgages and the home loans, and then even looking back at the FHA and the subsidies that went to contractors of what they were building. So the subsidies went to the manufacturers or the contractors and the developers for the suburbs, but not for any type of urban areas outside of projects. And yep. so the the mandate of the automobile and then further creating wealth gaps for economic opportunity for black and brown people is so ingrained in the highway system and in freeways and it's things that we don't even know or that we're not even thinking of all the time keep going ability to leave and go go back um, to the pie in the sky sorry (laughs) so i wanted to touch on what you said about the pie in the sky and these frameworks because in the episode that folks are going to hear we asked them like what happens next what's the planning of the future and the reality is we don't have necessarily overt racist codes that are like people of color can't live here and white people can live here instead it happens in more nuanced ways of, well, I don't want affordable housing in my backyard, or I don't want to see, you know, a homeless shelter over here. But these sort of um, processes and requirements about, you know, what type of housing can go where, what is the design of a certain type of building that can be in a certain space, all of these things then influence the planning of the future. And I think I would charge people that we have to confront this history we also need to reimagine the tools. We're using the same tools that created this messed up system to redesign the system, and that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so really thinking about, like, what is anti-racist planning and how do you put that into fruition? And I, I think, you know, I don't necessarily know all of the pieces, but that's the type of conversation no, I think you're and the work I want to be involved in. I think you're onto something in terms of saying, where is this explicitly in our land use controls and our zoning powers? And where is it in the housing policy? And actually saying, let's be anti-racist in these with the understanding of everything that we just talked about and then some, right? I think we should maybe do a separate episode on all of this because we just threw the whole kitchen sink at like everybody well, real fast. Say- if people want to think about how we reimagine and redesign in a different way, there's a group I've been following them on Instagram and I just participated in a webinar they did on white supremacy planning culture, but it was, um, the creative reaction lab. They have nice. a framework on equity based design and it's re I mean, it just challenges you in questions that you should be asking mm-hmm. and thinking about instead of asking, you know, did we include all people in our planning process? The question is, what is it about our planning process that has allowed more white circles to dominate our process mm-hmm. in the first place? And so flipping. OK, yeah, I like that. I like like even in thinking of opportunity zones and who's benefiting from opportunity zones, looking at CRA requirements for banks and those mandates, those federal mandates in banking, we have to do things so differently. And I like that lens of not saying it's the black and brown communities problem, but let's actually flip it. So please send me that. I'm going to go on our website after the link is posted and use it as a resource. I got you. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we can wrap up here. I hope people just really take some great things away from Femi's episode. Again, we're not doing our typical key takeaways, key points. This is, I guess, your broad education, maybe urban planning 101. Everybody should go into planning. This is where the opportunity is for real change. And I'm hoping that the conversations evolve into that because 
right now I'm feeling really like literally right now I just kind of want to cry a little bit I mean I'm with you in sharing your anger sharing your rage sharing your sadness I think as an hopeless optimist I really do feel that we are at a moment where it's time for planners to get it right and if we get serious about community engagement and we get serious about who's actually designing, shaping, and maintaining our cities and creating space for new voices to do that, I think we can come out of this and really not just reimagine, but actually recreate a better process and better outcomes for people. So I'm, I'm going to hold on to some hope, but I'm going to drag you along with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So here's Femi. Today, we are talking to Femi Adeliku, and Femi is one of the most creative minds I've ever met in urban planning. had the pleasure of going to school with him and just watching him really push the conversation around how do we leverage data to create smarter and better cities. So excited to have an opportunity to pick his brain and to hear about some of the work that he's been doing. Femi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. Um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad we're, we're having this conversation. Hashtag creatives. I love it. So I'm excited yeah. because we're all plan nerds. I would say I'm a self-proclaimed nerd of planning. So I'm really excited for what's in store. How, I guess, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into planning, like what your journey into the urban planning space looked like? Definitely, by all means. I always love telling my story. So uh, initially in college, I, I studied uh, urban sociology. Uh, which is sort of, uh, I'll say, uh, a, a grandmother of planning, if you will. Uh, but I've always loved cities. Um, growing up, my dad and my mom moved from from Europe to Africa multiple times. Uh, my dad was a professor, and he, you know, taught in various colleges. So just going going with them back and forth, and just seeing how cities differ uh, in terms of where they're located just spiked my interest in cities and I just followed through with, you know, urban sociology. And after that, I I, need, I wanted to get more, uh, more or less, uh, and follow that up with a master's in city planning. Uh, so that's sort of a, the, the short version of, of cities. But the main reason I'm so interested in cities is because I understand that the configuration of cities, the way cities are designed and set up, always has a direct influence on the quality of life of those living in, in cities. So I figured if you have the tools to structure cities better, you will have better outcomes for, you know, people, the residents in the city, the people living in the city, the people visiting the city. I'm curious, you know, if we think about right now, we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think one of the things that's come up in a number of our conversations, as well as I think in article after article, is that black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by coronavirus. If you think about, you know, that statement right there, what are we getting wrong in cities? Like, what have we planned wrong that's maybe leading to some of those disproportionate out outcomes? That's a that's a great question. I mean, historically, you see there's, there's sort of a divide, if you will, between income classes and how they are geographically represented. And this is not unique to the U.S. Uh, it's a general city problem. You know, you have people that are represented in the higher uh, level of income usually living in the same area and, you know, people on the middle and lower income uh, strata or whatever you want to call, um, call it for lack, lack of better terms, living in a different sort of area within the same city. And that just sort of, I think, fosters 
uh, a situation where there there will always be uh, disparities in terms of opportunities, in terms of closeness to opportunities, uh, infrastructure, and a whole range of you know other socioeconomical problems. I mean, so this. Can you just before we go any further? I think there's a lot of definitions at the, that we could explain. I think if you talk to 10 planners, you get 10 different definitions of what urban planning is. So with your global perspective, you just touched on the planning in different cities. What's your definition of urban planning? And then how is that, I guess, part of the conversation? Yeah, definitely. So the best analogy I think is to, to use is to uh, use the human body. <laughs> um, so think of cities as a complex system of different parts all connected together, just like the human body. And if you have a system that's that complex, you also have to have, you know, methods and and processes for making sure you sort of retain uh, the health and the proper functioning of, of those systems. So I will say as doctors are to human beings, urban planning and urban planners are to cities. I love that analogy. I feel like um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is when we think about just how, not just how complex our bodies are, but the different systems in which we use to communicate from like our veins to our neurons to all these different things. I feel like it's been years since I've taken a biology class. So I'm probably getting the terms really wrong, but just I think when we think words. about our- Just keep saying yeah. random words, you'll be fine. <laughs> You know, I clearly I've read enough WebMD to be a medical professional. But I think that like when we think about our cities and the ways in which our streets are interwoven to our businesses, it is one interconnected space. And I think too often we've set up, you know, whether it's our transit systems or our housing policy, we've set up all these structures that don't allow the systems to connect but instead keep them siloed and broken apart. There's a real opportunity for planners to you know, use their leverage, use their role to kind of change that and refoster these connections. So Femi, one of the things I love about your work and your approach is you're always asking this question of what's next? Like what's the future of cities? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of given where we are and the space we're in currently, what are you thinking of right now in terms of what's next for cities? Any exciting things you're working on that you can share? Yeah, definitely. I'm always, always working on uh, exciting, exciting stuff, and I, I'm uh, glad that you somehow picked that up from my my conversations. Maybe I I've, I've been repeating stuff too much, but yeah, what is next for, for cities? Um, funny enough, nothing has changed in my approach and in what I've been saying uh, for the past couple of years, and that's the fact that cities are randomly uh, urbanizing. The world is randomly urbanizing, uh, rapidly urbanizing, I should say, for the first time in 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 man's history, more people currently live in cities than, than ever before. More than half of the world's population live in cities. This is a good thing at the same time. It does present its challenges because if you're having a, a, a world that's rap- rapidly urbanizing, that just means that the problems of cities, that the problems that have historically been associated with cities are going to get worse if not checked, if not prepared for. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing now and today with the pandemic. This is not, we have had pandemics before in the past. Uh, the only difference with this is the, this, the, the world is now more urbanized and more connected. So therefore the, the pandemics too, you know, uh, or whatever problem uh, associated with cities would 
spread rapidly and probably have a higher higher effect. Um, all that being said, I still I still uh, believe that the future of civilization urbanization is in cities. Uh, there's something Louis Montfort says. He says, apart from language, the second best invention of man mankind, and this is debatable. Apart from language, the second best uh, invention of mankind are cities. So I still believe that cities present the future for you know innovation and increased quality of life for all, even including higher solutions to higher problems like climate change. I think those reside in cities. Um, we just have to formulate new ideas of how to manage uh, cities for better outcomes. And we're, we're starting with uh, the coronavirus. I think that that actually should set the stage for how serious we need to approach uh, the evolution of cities if we still want them here in, in the next in the next few years and in the future. I know that's very broad. Um, in terms of things that I'm actually working on right now, I'm in the process with my team uh, of just trying to figure out how to get people back in cities again and make it safe for, for everybody, you know, to go out, to go to a coffee shop or a restaurant, to ride the subway. Now, things will change, of course, and uh, things might not be the way we were. It's it's not probably going to go back to normal uh, for a while. But meanwhile, uh, there are opportunities to at least get uh, cities functioning to, to some level of normalcy again. Femi, I have a question on your professional experience as a Black urban planner. I know for me, one of my harshest realities was that I wasn't taken seriously in conversations until I had the AICP credentials at the end of my name, which I've since let lapse because I don't use it anymore. What has been your experience professionally as a planner, as a Black man in this space? Great question. It's been interesting, for one. Uh, speaking to the topic of not being taken seriously, I think I probably haven't noticed, uh, or maybe I just stopped paying attention to it because I've always been one of the kind of person that focuses on the, the issue at hand, and you know, sort of present arguments that no one can can more or less dispute. Now, of course, there's the I think there's there's always the the added layer of uh, not being accepted until you prove yourself one million times. You know, in retrospect, that just actually makes you know whatever uh, skill you're trying to build or whatever uh, ability you're trying to show the world or, or push forward. It just makes you able to make your point uh, better. But of course, you still you, you have to go through a, a system of checks and balances, uh, if you will. And I, I've seen that happen. But I think pushing ahead with, you know, whatever argument, whatever idea uh, that you have would always be the order of the day. I love what you said about, you know, finding ways to make points in a way that, you know, people can't refute. I wish that was at a society where we lived in where, you know, data and facts were all pe folks needed to hear and then they act. Um, but unfortunately, I think in my experience, that hasn't always been the case. And I know in your work, you've worked really hard to leverage maps and other resources to try and present the evidence first. I guess, can you talk a little bit about the way in which like, you focus on data to help drive policy and drive action in the cities you work in. Yeah, definitely, by all means. And it's, uh, so the approach more or less is trying to open up the discussion to a larger audience, you know, so you don't have the 
10 people that always show up for city council or planning commission or oversight hearings, the only ones, you know, making their contribution. And that's not to say their contribution is not valid or valued. We just need that discussion to be a larger discussion. And that's where data comes in, um, the ability to have more people involved in the uh, the community development process or making decisions that actually affect their, their da- daily life. Data is always a tool. Data and technology are always tools that you know bring more people to the uh, to the discussion and to the table. So whatever uh, decision is made is sort of representative of a larger audience, uh, you know, rather than than a, a smaller audience. And what data are you using to gauge the health of a city? Or we talk about disparities. We talk about the gap from, you know, when you look at typically white populations to others, what data do you use that really guides your understanding or decision-making around urban planning or around cities? Well, it depends on the situation at hand. It depends on, you know, the problem you're trying to solve. For instance, I'll give you an example. There's a general, you know, idea, ideology out there that there's a class of people that love their cars and love their parking. And there's this other class that are able to move, you know, into cities and stay next, next to a metro and they don't want parking. They, they ride their bikes and, 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 um, you know, walk. So that those are general conceptions. How do you actually now get actual data or responses from people um, to verify or, or refute those, those sort of claims. That's when you now go through your sources of data. For this case, you just might, you might have to just, you know, pull up sur- surveys and ask people questions and figure out how many people are living in a certain area versus how many people are visiting. Maybe uh, the larger audience of folks that want parking are, are not even residents to start with. Maybe they just come there to, to work. So that's just an example of, you know, how the situation sort, sort of determines the, the kind of data that you you use to uh, to run certain analysis. And in terms of uh, figuring out, you know, how decisions inf- uh, affects, you know, minorities and, and people that are in the lower uh, income classes, um, you just have to, you know, go through the same process and look at all the data available at your disposal? Is it a census data? Is it, do you actually need to go into those communities and look for data that speaks to the problem that you're trying to solve in association with, you know, other data sets and, and other databases that are out there? Earlier, you mentioned that data can be really helpful in bringing new voices to the table and changing the way we do outreach. And so I was just wondering if you could share an example from maybe a city or a community you've worked in where you've seen them do that well. I think it'd be helpful for folks to just kind of understand what good process could look like. Well, so that's uh, that's something we're still pushing for uh, in terms of people adopting uh, that approach more. We've seen communities and, and jurisdictions use data for their charrettes where you know, you're trying to design you're trying to implement a new plan, new uh, corridor plan or whatever, and they actually um, make people, give people the option of logging in and writing comments and posting it or contributing uh, to the meetings virtually. So that's a good start. We we still haven't seen cities, jurisdictions design platforms that allow people to contribute to 
you know, major legislative hearings or meetings virtually, you know, register your comments virtually. That's really exciting for through COVID times right now in that we're seeing that tech can be something that we, or should be something that we incorporate into our day-to-day operations. When you look at city council hearings and, you know, you have rezoning meetings where it's by law, you have to post that a parcel is being rezoned or a property is being rezoned and people typically do not show up for those hearings, right? Who wants to go to a planning commission meeting when you have a million other things to do? And so I I am hopeful that COVID-19 will move us in a direction where we can engage our communities and our neighbors in a much more meaningful way through the internet and our apps and phones and everything else. I think it also will push the question of when can't we? There was a really good, um, I think it was a webinar by Smart Growth America on virtual engagement and talking about the very thing you were saying, Katie, like how do we do this better? How do we have our meetings in a way that can reach more people by leveraging tech? But then also, when are there conversations that can't be done well virtually? And how do we put the brakes on certain processes until we can actually do the engagement that's necessary to get more voices in the room and to drive an authentic process? Sometimes, you know, cities aren't always willing to wrestle with that. It's like we have a timeline. We know we said this plan is going to be out by this time. And so we'll do one or two meetings and that's just enough so we can push it forward. But I think there needs to be this wrestling with of if that timeline no longer fits and if that timeline's not going to allow us to engage people in the right way, how do we how do we shift? How do we pivot and what will that take? Yeah, for sure. Or or even, I mean, again, I think COVID is highlighting it's 2020. I mean, we're still doing a lot of planning systems, procedures that are so antiquated and so old. It's boring. People aren't engaged. People are not wanting to give their input. They can't give their input. And even if you look at, okay, yeah, we're shifting things virtually, then you have the smart cities conversation. Are people wired to have conversations electronically? And what does that look like in communities of color or lower income communities or immigrant communities? And so I think it's uncovering a lot of layers. I think this is an onion, but to have the conversation going now that, hey, there are different ways that we can engage our populations in a meaningful way that really does evolve cities robustly, I guess is the best way to say it. I totally agree. And I mean, there's a reason why, you know, uh, it hasn't been so easy to implement too, because you have to think about, you know, all these other things. And you, you just mentioned some of them. If you're rolling out th- that kind of platform, it has to definitely be different from your regular day, say, social media, for instance. You know, you have to be able to verify the people posting comments and where they are from and, you know, a whole bunch of other things associated with, you know, opening things up virtually, especially if you're going to be making important decisions from, uh, you know, those interactions. But definitely, I think this situation opens up not just the necessity for it, but just it, it should spur some political will to actually, you know, get platforms and tools like that in place. If you were sitting in front of maybe some of our local elected officials and you were talking to them about, you know, how do you create a more inclusive table or how do you do engagement differently? in order to really make um, decisions coming out of COVID-19 that are centered on people and can drive cities forward, what would be some of the advice that you might give to them or some of the questions you would encourage them to think about? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I, I mean, I think the center, the, the focus should always be, you know, the people in 
uh, your jurisdictions or your city or, you know, where, whatever, wherever it is that you're governing. And for me is, it has always revolved around two important things, you know, quality of life and economic development. How are, have uh, residents been af- affected by the pandemic in those two areas would be the first question. And from there, I think you could start forging ahead in terms of how to uh, sort of approach developing solutions to those two questions. I mean, obviously, this, the, the pandemic and the need to, you know, shut down uh, and social distancing and all that has is costing people, you know, basically their life. But that's not uh, that's not to criticize, you know, those uh, uh, those actions because it's obviously needed. Now we just have to ask ourselves how to start coming. How do we start coming back from from those uh, setbacks? And to your point about how you know to how do you sort of focus uh the the approach to to make sure that everybody's accounted for that's a that's a serious you know underlining uh issue that should be addressed and i think constantly understanding the makeup of the stats of the numbers we're seeing is very important because if you're just seeing numbers you're seeing oh um, x amount of people out of work x amount of people um are uh had have businesses closed down you just see the numbers, but you don't actually know who those people are, you know, um, and what makes what, what makes those numbers up. So actual demographics behind those numbers would be very important in moving forward and, and developing prob, uh, solutions to problems because the solutions cannot be blanket solutions. You cannot say we're implementing this program, you know, in a blanket way. It has to be specific to certain neighborhoods, certain groups and minority classes and, and, and income classes. So what, what's next for you? Like what's your next big step and what conversations are you having um, to, to advance your work? So uh, for me and, and my team and, and the people I work with, we are currently in the process of developing an approach to respond to, to the pandemic in terms of uh, the the economic aspect of, of things that that basically just uh, entails how how to reopen you know businesses and just taking a general approach of just taking stock of of how we got here in the first place how do we respond and you know in the future how do we prevent this sort of uh, events from disrupting our our daily lives even though we cannot stop it from happening how do we stop it from disrupting our regular um, way of life. That's the that's the next step, and, and that's the uh, current project that I'm working on. I'm really interested in learning more about you know when you guys create that model and framework, and I suspect some of our listeners might be too. So just curious, how can folks um, stay engaged with you or stay connected to your work? Active on all social social media platforms. I'm I'm a millennial, so. That's that's. The, uh, but other than that, you know, I'm very responsive to emails. So those, those there are multiple ways to reach me, and anyone that is actually interested in anything I just spoke about, we should probably have a conversation because this is the time where you know you, we need to collaborate and and think about the solutions to these problems because this the problems are there they are new in a way, and you know the, that just demands different approach to to problem solving. Share your handles, your social media handles. We'll definitely put those in the show notes. 
and uh, hopefully people will start to reach out and get engaged and change the change the way we do urban planning. Yes, by all means, that sounds like a like an amazing plan. This has been a a really great conversation, a really you know high level conversation. Those are these are the kind of conversations I, I live for. Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, on our website at checkboxoutreach.com. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.